She's looking forward to a wedding in October. Justin, he lives in uh, North London. He runs all over the place. So uh, if you can ever pin him down for five minutes, you're doing a really good job with Justin, but he's keeping quite busy. And uh, Natalie, she's just fi- finishing her uh, further studies in Warwick. So she's hoping to be done with her dissertation here in the next couple of months. So that's a little bit about the family. Let me pray, and then we're going to come to God's Word. Most gracious and merciful Lord, we want to come tonight, and we want to learn from your Word, word how to face life as it really is, with all its ups and downs, with all its surprises and seemingly, at times, disappointments. Pray that we may learn from your word as we look into the lives of your dear servants, how you work in the world, how you work in our lives, and that through that, that we might gain great wisdom as we seek to understand what you're doing in our hearts and lives. And if we're here tonight and we don't know you, Lord, our cry to you is that you may just pierce through and speak to us and just the words we need to hear, and you might help us to see something incredibly wonderful and compelling about the wonder of the Lord Jesus. And so we commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel was utterly confused, bewildered, to be honest. For years he had been following and pursuing what he felt was God's will for his life, consistently. It wasn't a naive pursuit. He had had given himself to prayerful consideration. He assessed himself and asked others to assess his own gifts. He sought the Lord in prayer and felt that in many ways God had shown him through the counsel of others in other situations the right way to go. The problem was everything seemed to be falling apart. It was all seemingly an obstacle to what he was convinced was God's will for his life. Susie, she was at a turning point in her life. There had been disappointments in close relationships that she hoped would develop. There had been frustrations in her own life and all that she thought it would work out to. And it had caused her, probably for the first time in her life, to just get to that place where, even though it sounded cliché, She was just beginning to ask, what is it really all about? She wasn't religious, to be honest. Uh, This whole God thing really was nowhere within her worldview. But she was intrigued by the Christian she knew. She was intrigued that they seemed to have a confidence. They seemed to maybe know why their lives mattered. So there she was in church, desperate that she might discover, is there anything really worth living for? Samuel and Susie, I think, are both struggling in different ways with the same question. I don't think it's so much what is there worth living for in life. I know that 
sounds almost so cliche, it's meaningless today. But I think really what they were wrestling with is, is more this question. Is there anything in life that is so compelling, that is so encompassing, that's so beautiful, that it's worth me spending my life for? It's worth me dying for, much less living for. Is there anything like that in life? Elizabeth Elliot once wrote, <clears throat> there is nothing worth living for unless you're worth, it's worth dying for. I think that's true. Uh, unless there's something in my life that's compelling, that I'm really willing to pay for it, then it's questionable really whether I have anything in my life worth really living for. It's interesting as we come tonight in Acts chapter 21, we come to a man named Paul who had an answer for this question, at least in his life. He would explain it later when he would be in prison some months and years after really what we're going to be reading about. And he would put it this way. To live is Christ. To die is gain. He had an unstoppable heart that had a clear conviction that there was one thing, no, wait a minute, actually one person that is so compelling, so all-encompassing in who he is, so beautiful, that that one person is worth to actually facing all the struggles and problems and mess that are part of real life. And he was willing to do that. And our chapter tonight, it really is looking at his heart. What did that really mean? How, how clearly did he actually work that out in his own life? And it's in a chapter that, that many would say is Paul's Gethsemane. Where he, like the Lord Jesus, faces one of the greatest trials in his life. Well, if you have a Bible open with me, I think you'll find it on page 1118. And I want to just look through a little bit tonight of what we find there about the unstoppable heart that we see in this servant Paul. Now, if you go through the book of Acts... One of the things that you'll recognize in the book of Acts is that, that after Jesus lived, after he died, after he rose again, and then he gave a sort of a crash, uh, sort of uh, four or five week Bible course, advanced theology of, of who he is and all that he had accomplished. He gave it to his disciples. He went back to the enthronement beside God the Father, and he sends them out into the world. And in the book of Acts is the miraculous spread, the explosion of the gospel. As it just goes from one place to another, and men and women just come in by droves to find new life. Now in the midst of that, one of the most significant people is the Apostle Paul tonight. And one of the surprising things, really, when you're going through the book of Acts, is you come to this place... And suddenly, Paul 
has an absolute conviction he's got to go to Jerusalem. Uh, it comes out a little bit earlier in Acts chapter 20, uh, 22, as uh, Ken reminded us when he was with the Ephesian elders. And he says when he's with the Ephesian elders, he says on that occasion, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Now, it's a really interesting word, that word compelled. It's a, an incredibly strong word. It's a, it's, it's a word that means you are constrained beyond your own choice. It's sort of like a policeman comes up to you, Bobby comes up to you and says, look, I'm taking you in. He puts a handcuff on one hand, the other handcuff on his other hand, and he drags you into the police station. That's the picture here, that, that he is compelled beyond his own ability by the Holy Spirit. I think obviously he's describing here something of a deep supernatural conviction from the Holy Spirit to him directly that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, here's the intriguing thing. From that part point on, he has nothing but problems. Everything falls apart. Uh, you get into chapter 21, and he stops at one place uh, there in Tyre. And as he gets off, he goes and he gets up with the disciples. And the response of the disciples is that they move something by an acknowledgement through the Holy Spirit of what God was going to do in Paul's life. They plead with him, don't go. Imagine this you know, huge group of disciples are coming in, don't go. Whatever you do, don't go to Jerusalem. And, and it even gets worse because Paul continues on the journey. He goes, stops at a, another place in Caesarea. He spends the night there with uh, one of the friends and this prophet, a man recognized whom God speaks to, comes to him, Agabus, there in chapter 21, verse 10. And, and he, he takes Paul's belt off him. He ties it around his own hand, his own feet, and he says, when you go to Jerusalem, this is what they're going to do to you. And then, to make it harder, you'll, you'll notice in, in verse 12, the pronoun changes from them to we. And, and what you have is Luke the writer alongside all these people in Caesarea and, and the rest of the apostolic bounds. His closest friend, they all plead with him, don't go. Don't go. Go anywhere but Jerusalem. It's such an overwhelming situation that, that Paul has to say, I think brokenhearted, verse 13, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Stop it. And he comes, interesting, to that conclusion there in the verse of 14. The Lord's will be done. I'm going to Jerusalem. It's interesting there how you see what often can happen in the life of God's people. That their lives become a very, very dim reflection of the Lord Jesus. Almost like a mirror. can see in this, you can see our Lord Jesus when he told his disciples, I'm, I must go to Jerusalem. He set his face to Jerusalem. And from that point on, his, his disciples who loved him, they constantly said, don't go to Jerusalem, Lord. Don't go to Jerusalem. And, and then even there, the Garden of Gethsemane, a 
God would be your will. Take this cup from me. But nevertheless, your will be done. Paul finds himself in a much lesser way living out something of a reflection of the wonder of our Lord Jesus in his own life as he goes to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, verse 17, 21, 17, he gets an incredibly warm welcome in two ways. A very warm welcome. Uh, the first part is that uh, Paul brings him a gift. This is the motivation of his visit to go to Jerusalem. There's been a severe famine for the Jewish believers who are in Jerusalem. And, and Paul has gone around all the, the largely Gentile-dominant churches that he's been to and established in Corinth and Colossae and other places. And he gets them together and he's gone to them and he said, look, these are fellow Christians over here who are suffering dramatically. Will you give an offering to them? And Paul brings an offering to help the starving Christians there in Jerusalem. Now, let me, let me be very clear here. This isn't like the retiring offering tonight. The reality is most of us give a little bit that's almost innoticeable out of our abundance. Very few of us really give anything twice. The offering that Paul brings, you can see this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, that he brought it from those who were actually on the poverty level in the churches in Asia. So, so most of them would have been slaves. They, they would have been largely in the lower economic class. Very few had a lot of money. So, so the offering for most of them would have represented their whole family going without a meal for a day. It, it was utterly sacrificial. And, and Paul brings it here to the church in Jerusalem, and he says, I'm bringing you this incredible, generous display of love. Now, he knows it's a, it's a good thing to do, but it's a wise thing to do. Because he knows there's this sort of growing friction between the, the largely Jewish believers in the home church at Jerusalem and the overwhelmingly Gentile believers up in Asia. And, and there's beginning to be this sort of division between them. And he knows, look, this is a demonstration we're all one in Christ. And he brings that to them and there is a, a tremendous celebration of the love show. But he also knows that he's in danger. And he willingly accepts that because he knows he's going into danger land by going back to Jerusalem because of misunderstandings. But he tells us why later he was willing to do that in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 when he said, look, I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to advance the gospel of my day. If it means danger for me, so be it. But I want to just live to advance the gospel. Well, that was one welcome that he received, which was one of warm-hearted reception we read about there in those early verses in 17 to 19. But it was followed... <coughs> probably the next day, by a very different warm welcome at the elders' meeting. 
very difficult elders meeting. There, there are, I'm sure the elders will tell you sometimes, very difficult elders meetings. And he finds himself in that very kind of a situation there in verse 18. It says this, the next day, Paul and the rest of us, we went to see James and the elders, and all the elders were present, and Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. <clears throat> and then they said to Paul. Now, what happens here is that Paul goes to them and he says, look, you haven't even begun to realize the wonder of the gospel. I want to tell you about what's happening in the churches in Asia Minor. You know, there's a lot of us who think about the gospel as, as something like a, a sort of wet little pussycat recording. If anything but. I, I find myself in wonder as I talk to many Iranians there in Cardiff. And it seems to be one of the main places Iranians are coming from, from that country that is so adamant against the gospel. And yet, there are so many coming out of that country who have had dreams that they believe that God comes to them in their dream and says, you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an incredible growth of Iranians coming to faith in Christ today across the world. The gospel isn't some kind of wet pussycat. It's an explosive reality when it's released into the lives of people. And Paul brings that and he tells of the explosion of pagans in the Roman world who are just coming and confessing their trust and faith and following the Lord Jesus Christ across the Roman world. Now, it's interesting, commentators sort of differ on what happens at that meeting. Some suggest that what happens is that there's a, a lot of suspicion and, and, and almost an aggressive reaction from the elders there as Paul reports this. And, and they're wanting actually to rebuke him, to clip his wings. I think actually that's an ingre- that is a, a totally wrong way of reading this. Because notice there in verse 20, the first thing they do is praise God. Hallelujah. Jesus is building his kingdom. And then they turn to him and they, they call him there in verse 20, brother. I, I think this is gospel-hearted partnership. As, as they say to Paul, Paul, we just want to rejoice in what Christ is doing through you in the Gentile world. There was a problem. They go on to explain it, verse 21 on. That the mainly Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem had an incredibly deep suspicion and even fear of compromise by the inclusion of all the Gentiles. In fairness, I I think you have to be fair to them. Uh, most of these thousands who had come to faith in Jerusalem, they never left Jerusalem. It's not like living in Luton and never living in Luton or leaving Luton or Milton Keynes. You know, that's my world. And in their world was Jewishness. That's all they knew. And so for them, when, when Paul started coming back in and, and saying, look, there, there's been this tremendous growth amongst people who wouldn't know a Jew from a tipsy fly, they, they felt like, 
You're doing something wrong. I, I think it's something like somebody saying, I'm an American Christian. I'll put it in that sentence myself. I'm an American Christian. Well, actually, there is no such thing as an American Christian. There are only Christians who are Americans. Incredible, important distinction. In other words, within the body of Christ, there isn't my little camp over here, and your little camp over there, and your little cultural camp over there, and we're also within the body of Christ, but we're all separate, sitting in our own little corner. That isn't what God is doing. There's only one body of Christ where we all have a unique distinctness. But the believers in Jerusalem, they hadn't grown enough to figure that out. They were still carrying the baggage of their Jewishness into their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result was that they saw Paul as a dangerous element that they needed to push away. Now, the truth of the matter was, there, there was some grain of truth to their charge. They were, they were wrong on the one hand in believing that wherever Paul went with the gospel, that he automatically told anybody from a Jewish background, have nothing to do with your Jewish background. You know, reject it. Paul never did that. You can go through and read the Bible in the New Testament. You'll never see Paul saying, have nothing to do with your background, your culture. Whether that is Jewishness or whether it's paganism, it's not a call to automatically put off your culture. But it is true that when Paul taught the gospel, he said this. That whatever your own personal, cultural beliefs and practices are, once you come to Jesus, they are utterly irrelevant before God. They have no value. You might have thought by doing this that, that, that that made you closer or a better person or a better Christian. Paul said it makes no value at all. Galatians chapter 2 verse 19. That it actually in Christ is all leveled. So, they suggest to Paul, verses 23 and 24, I think what is a gospel-hearted accommodation, you know, for the peace of the body, they say, look, Paul, we, we've got a couple guys going down, and they put their trust in the Lord Jesus, but they're going to come down, and they're going to have their heads shaved, they're going to go through this sort of Jewish rite of purification. You know what, it would be great if you paid for all that, and, and you sort of, as it were, by, by that act, you, you sort of took away the heat all these people who still have this baggage of trying to still be Jewish as Christians. Now, I wonder how you think about that. It, it, were, were they saying to Paul, compromise or accommodation? What, what was happening there? There, there are a lot of Paul, people who, who look at this passage and they say, well, actually, what Paul does here is, is Paul has a weak moment. A lot of pressure. A lot of close pressure around him. He's, he's tired from all his ministry. And, and in the pressure cooker at that moment, he, he compromises. We can understand that. He can't handle it. So, so what he does is he, he actually compromises the very thing that he teaches in Galatians. He, he compromises it in order to get an easier life. 
actually got some very, very poor readings of what happened. I think what Paul does is exactly what he says he always does in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I become all things to all men that by all possible means I might win some. To those under the law, I'm quite happy to become like one under the law. To those who are not under the law, I'm quite happy to become like them. So, so I'm willing, if I'm back in Jerusalem, I will go in there and eat some kosher bread. But if I'm with the Gentiles up in Rome, I'll have a ham sandwich. F.F. Bruce, he said a really helpful thing, I think. He said, a truly emancipated man, such as Paul, is not ever in bondage to his emancipation. In other words, if you're truly free, you're not enslaved to your freedom. You don't have to prove it at every point. You don't have to remind somebody of it every time. You're truly free. If you're free in Christ, you're free indeed. Don't go around with a chip on your shoulder to have to prove it all the time. And Paul here doesn't have to prove that he's free. So he makes an accommodation. Now, let me just very quickly, and this is so Bob doesn't get on me and I get in trouble. Let me just remind you that there are some boundaries on that, which I think come out in the passage. First of all, there was clarity on the gospel. Uh, verse 20, uh, the, the elders affirm, I think, in their praise, the doctrine of Paul. They don't challenge it, correct it. They don't say you need to, to do this. They don't do that at all. They accept the gospel. And, and even when they come to verse 25, they don't add anything more to what it means to live out the gospel. So, so there's clarity on the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what saves. There's clarity on the non-essentials. In other words, what's not really part of the gospel. And I think that's really what Paul sees, and I think the elders as well in verse 24. If these men want to go get their hair cut and the right of uh, purification, let them do it. Who cares? But let them never think they're any closer to God by doing it. Because that has nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing to do with their real relationship with Christ. But, but if that's part of their culture and they find that helpful, do it. Just so long as you don't put any spiritual weight on it. It's all right. So having recognized those, that Paul then goes on to recognize, sometimes you have to serve the weaker brothers in love. I think that's Romans 14 talks a lot about that. Some of our weaker brothers are those who are just ignorant and ill-taught. They brought baggage into their lives with Christ, and uh, they haven't sorted that out. They, they, they're just ill-taught. Okay, some of our weaker brothers are rigidly inflexible and wrong. Paul says, okay, I'm happy to do that. An unstoppable heart in a hard place. The story moves, though, to an unstoppable heart in the fire. In verses 27 to 36. Now, this is interesting because what we see there is, if you read through the passage, I won't go through it, but what you see there is that Paul meticulously 
does everything right. Humble accommodation. I'm not going to make a point here. I don't have to prove my freedom. I'm going to take this act of love for the weaker brothers. And he does that meticulously. And as he does it, it's completely misunderstood. And the result is, by the time you get to verse 30, there's a riot. And everyone in that riot has one thought in mind. Slaughter Paul. Okay? He's done everything right. And it all blows up into a fight. Let me pause there a minute. can we believe that as we seek to follow God that we may not at times experience the same things? Now, even more intriguingly, if you turn back to chapter 9, verses 15 and 16 of Acts, you discover that when Paul is called to God and he's told what his mission will be, he's told that his mission will eventually to testify about the Lord Jesus before Gentile kings. Okay? He told that all the way back at the beginning of his walk with Christ there in Damascus. And the reality is that the events of this fire we're reading here did tonight were the very things that led him to do that. In other words, if you read the next four chapters, you will see him testifying to four kings as well as the these events lead directly to the fulfillment of what God's will was in Paul's life, that he should go to the Gentile kings and eventually he would end up in Rome before Caesar himself to testify about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think about that, you know, you, you just realize how easy it is for you and I to misread what God is doing in our lives when things go difficult. We, we thank God, where are you? How could you let this happen? And, and actually what God is doing is preparing the ground that you can fulfill in your life the very purpose he raised you up for. Through those very fires. Paul later in Rome, when he would be in prison, he would write in Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 that he viewed these afflictions as an opportunity to what he says is 
to fill up what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That's a fascinating passage. He looks on these events that he would be beaten, he would be imprisoned, he would be sent from one court to the other, to the other, to the other. Eventually he'd be shipwrecked, he'd be sent to Rome, he'd have to stand before Caesar. And he says, actually, I recognize what's happening is I'm filling up what's lacking. And the afflictions of Christ for his people. Now, of course he isn't saying in any way, shape, or form that somehow Jesus, what he did on the cross, wasn't enough and he has to do a little bit more with the suffering of his people. He's not saying that. I think what he's saying is this. In some way, his people will partner with Jesus in the suffering that is needed for the growth of the gospel in this world until Jesus returns. That suffering and affliction is not a surprise. It's actually one of the basic realities of of what it means to follow Christ. Because you're partnering with Jesus as he fills out his kingdom and builds his kingdom across the world. We had a team just recently go down to the Philippines. And... um, they went into the prisons there in the Philippines. You know anything about the, the prisons in the Philippines? What they basically do is the police guard the outside and the gangs actually control the inside of the prisons. They just don't even go inside. They just keep them from leaving the prison. And the team went in there basically to take medical care and help to the prisoners because they have no medical care. And so the team went over there to do that. And one of the team, when they were going out there, without swimming... Philippines, out in that lovely water, beautiful, isn't it? Paradise Island. They got stung by a blue ring octopus. And the reality is, it seems to this octopus, basically, everyone dies within an hour. No one lives. I think there's one other person that's lived. No one lives. Uh, and, and this person has gone out to surf Christ. Stung by that. Eventually, they became very ill. They flew them to Manila. There was a neurotoxin of which there is no antidote. And basically, the doctors were saying, okay, we'll keep her comfortable. We don't think there's any hope. And uh, that's how it went on for about a week to 10 days. And then suddenly, about four days ago, she woke up and sat up and she's all right. It's going to take a longer journey. Now, the question that comes is, should we be surprised about that? I think no. That as the gospel is taken of Jesus Christ into the world, there will be those who literally get stung by octopuses in order to go serve people in prison in the Philippines who need the gospel. And that shouldn't surprise us. Let me take some final lessons from uh, an unstoppable heart as we just come to the end there. I think there's three things that come out to me here. First of all is um, we need to learn gospel flexibility with one another. I think this passage is a, is a warning to us to beware of judging one another. You know what? We as Christians are horrible at this. You know, we, we can fall into the problem of thinking... You know, our, our little perspective, our little camp of the people who agree with me, that, that we've got it right and everyone else has got it wrong to some degree. 
draw. Now, we never say that. We just show it in our prejudice against it. We don't say it was worse. We just act it out. That they're not right. And I think this passage needs to teach us that, that we need to exercise humility with one another when we know that the core gospel truths are in agreement. We're in agreement on the core gospel truth. There isn't a problem there. Are living that out. Then, friends, what we really need to do, we need to be gospel-hearted in partnership and not condemn one another. We're all part of the body of Christ. We will be in heaven, so why don't we start loving each other now? But we're all part of the same body. For the Michaels amongst us, I think there's a lesson here of gospel steadfastness. Not the Michaels, the Samuels who I started with. Forgive me. For the Samuels who are caught up in the middle of the fire tonight and, and everything to be going wrong when they thought it was right and they're tempted to misread God in their situation. Incredible temptation. Now, let's be honest. Frankly, sometimes the fires that happen in our life are nothing more than the consequence of our own silliness. Let's be honest about that. You know, we're self-deluded, we're, 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 we're going on our own little way without thinking about it or asking anybody else, and, and suddenly we get into a problem, it all falls apart. Friends, what you need to do is you need to just have humility to say, you know what, I got it wrong, forgive me, Lord. You know, get me back on track. If that's where you are, you just need to admit it. Don't bluff it out in pride. I got it wrong. But on the other hand, sometimes the fires are precisely because we're walking in faithfulness. Sometimes the fires are refining us for future usefulness. Friends, let me say this graciously. Stop wasting your time on motive when life goes wrong. Stop it. How can you believe you serve a sovereign God, i.e. someone who is over all things, i.e. over my life and the details of my life? How can you believe that you actually serve a, serve a sovereign God over all things and that when problems happen, that somehow he isn't at work in that? How can you do that? Some of us waste years moaning and grumbling going on and on and on about the injustice to us when actually it's God at work refining you so that you can serve his purposes through your life. We need to sometimes recognize that it's simply our privilege To stand in the fire to fill out what's lacking of the building, building of the kingdom of God. It's our privilege that we might be there at that point. There also needs to be gospel honesty. If you're a Susie tonight, you come in here. You're just bobbing along in life. But maybe you're here now at a point where you're beginning to just ask this question to yourself. 
though the advertisers tell you that uh, as long as you get the right car, the right deodorant, have the right sexual experience, it will all be worth it. Well, come on, you're not that kind of an idiot to believe that, are you? You know that's rubbish. You know that you can get it and then two seconds later you've forgotten it. None of those things ultimately make your life worth it, really. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something more compelling than that. There's got to be something more solid than that. There's got to be something more all-embracing than whether I wear that fashion of makeup tomorrow. There's got to be something in my life that's actually so important and worth it that I'm willing to spend my life for it. Or my life is meaningless. And one of the things, surely, that, that we see here is there is something more. There is something more compelling. There is something more solid. It's not a thing. It's a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who stepped into this world and, and gave up everything. Who devalued or, or de, uh, sort of took away everything, his riches and all that they had, all the worth. He laid it all aside for one reason, to go to a cross, to die on it for you. For one reason. You might not live 50, 60, 70 years and die and be meaningless. But you might live 50, 60, 70 years of your life mean something. Because it's united with his life. And that Jesus, who went to the real Gethsemane, who didn't just share in suffering, but he took it on the cross for you, that Jesus invites you to come and put your trust in him and finally find something that's really worth living for. And he calls you tonight. Let's bow in prayer. Most gracious, merciful Lord, we want to thank you for the unstoppable heart of Paul. All that it shows us and speaks to us. And we ask that you might help us to grow something of that same unstoppable heart. Help us to have gospel flexibility. We need it in our day. Help us to learn of gospel steadfastness when we go through the fires. And help us with gospel honesty to find something that's finally worth living, spending our life for, even dying for. And we pray that in that you may captivate our hearts in Christ. Amen.